Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. I want to start with a story from my background because the topics we're going to be discussing today are heavy, though I remain very hopeful, and you'll learn why as we go through the discussion today. But when I was in high school, um, a classmate of mine died by suicide during our junior year of high school. She was someone that was in my kindergarten classroom, went through all of elementary school with her as a classmate, uh, and then uh, tragically, she took her own life during high school for reasons that I don't understand, nor do I think any of my classmates fully understand, but it happened. Um, That obviously impacted me. Fast forward about 35 years now as an administrator at a higher education institution. When I go to meetings now, I would say that one of the topics that has been a reoccurring topic for the last three to five years, but has become extremely important in our discussions over the last year and a half is the topic of student well-being. Now, I think this is connected to my experience in high school because I think that the issue of student well-being is one um, that really spans generations. But I also think it's one that we have a lot more awareness about now uh, because we're starting to take uh, notice of the fact that we have a lot of kids in our classrooms, both higher education and pre-K-12, that are going through a lot of difficulties that we need to help. And so that's what we're gonna be tackling today. I have two guests on the program with me. First is Dr. Jim Mazza, who's a professor of education at the University of Washington. He specializes in topics related to adolescents' mental health, including social emotional learning and also adolescent suicidal behavior. My second guest is Ann Brown. She's president and CEO of the Cook Center for Human Connection, a nonprofit organization based in Park City, Utah, which works as a conduit to bring together programs, partnerships, research, and policy that are vital for promoting mental health, particularly among children and adolescents. And yeah, thanks, and Scott, Jim, for having thank us. you so much for being on the <laughs> yes, program thank today. You, Scott. So I want to start by not burying the lead, which I'm often apt to do, not being a great journalist. Um, so to start with, the two of you collaborated to create a program called My Life is Worth Living. Could and you just briefly overview that program, recognizing that I'm going to dig in and ask you a lot of specific questions later, but can you just kind of set the scene of what that program and that series is so that we can understand the context behind our discussion? Yeah, sure. So My Life is Worth Living is the first animated series about youth mental health. Its focus is on helping children understand that they're not alone. They're not the only ones dealing with these mental health issues as well as helping the people who love the children and, and are around the children understand how they can be helpers in a, in a difficult situation. The series has 20 episodes, four minutes each episode, and we cover the stories of five teens that are all struggling with some of the major issues that teens struggle with today with regard to mental health. And, and Jim, you're not directly affiliated with the Cook Center, but you collaborated on this project um, because of your uh, background and your scholarly expertise. Can you talk about what your role was in the My Life Worth Living series and, and sort of what the topics are that brought you into that collaboration? Yeah, sure. That'd be great. And, you know, I was really um, privileged and honored that I was being asked to provide some expertise content regarding the 
the series that was occurring. I think that the Cook Center has brilliantly been able to animate these five characters and put them in roles that I often see the adolescents who are at risk for suicide kind of displaying. So I just think it's a really good illustration of what happens and what adolescents think about uh, that are struggling with their mental health issues. And this one centers around suicidal behavior. And so uh, I just thought it was uh, fantastic. You know, they um, they brought me in to make sure that the, the language and the strategies that the characters were engaging in and um, they were deciding on how to take care of themselves made realistic sense to what I was seeing as a you know, school psychologist who works with a lot of adolescents who are at risk for suicide. So sticking with you for a moment, James, uh, Jim, y- your background as a school psychologist and the research that you do gives you a broad perspective on this issue. Some journalists have called this a crisis. Educators have called this a crisis. Can you talk about in, in broad terms the landscape, the scope of the issue of mental health and well-being that our our children are facing right now. Yeah, I would probably agree with the, the term crisis again. And so this is uh, this was a crisis before uh, the pandemic occurred. It has the pandemic has only made it worse. And so I, I think that crisis is probably the right word. I, you know, as as our children become adolescents and become young adults, the pressures on them to succeed and the pressures on them to fit in have been uh, ramping up and ramping up. And so, Scott, you shared when you were in high school uh, a situation where somebody died from suicide. And now fast forward 25 years later, do we think that adolescence now going to high school is easier than uh, adolescence when you were there? And I would argue no. I would argue that you still have adolescent issues that go on. You still are... uh, uh, hyper concerned about how people uh how many people like you you're hyper concerned about your friends your looks your personality your body i mean all those things still exist because of adolescence and then you've got this whole focus on your peers and social media that wasn't there scott when you went and so Mm -hmm. that piece there is exacerbating the problem and now throw in the fact that you can't even be with your friends for the last two years there's social isolation so this mental health piece was already uh, at a crisis level uh, before the pandemic, it is way into that crisis level territory now from my my standpoint where increases of depression and anxiety, there's increases in adolescent visits to the emergency rooms, there's an increase in opioid use right now and drug overdoses. And so I think that we need to change the culture in which we provide education to say education is more than the geometry, the language arts, the science and the biology. It needs to be also helping kids make decisions for themselves that are adaptive and effective. And so, uh, you know, I think education needs to be for the whole child, not just the academic child. You explained that so well, but but I do want to probe on a couple things, <laughs> maybe sure. just restating some things that you, you eloquently already stated, but, but I think it's so important. So if a person that doesn't have, you know, that hasn't taken time to look at, you know, even popular press write-ups about student well-being, they might think about the, they might think about it in in overly simplistic terms. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but they might think that a particular child has some sort of triggering event that causes them to become anxious, depressed, or so on and so forth. And what I heard you just say is that 
that's not a that's not the right way to look at it because as a kid is going through school and going through their social and family lives there are multiple forces that are all acting at the same time so if you think about social media that is something that is new that is influencing the student on a daily basis that could impact their well-being you add on top of that a worldwide pandemic that causes social physical isolation, but then actually probably accelerates the use of social media because they're spending so much more time in front of screens. The point I'm getting to is that these forces interact and magnify. Is that a fair hypothesis? That was beautiful. I don't even know why you need me. That was perfect. (laughs) Well, but I think it's important to understand because that means then that if you're trying to tackle solutions it's not a solution that can be targeted on one thing. It's got to be, as you said, a holistic solution, correct? That's right. It needs to be a system solution. And it's not just the school's responsibility. It's not just the home's responsibility either. It really needs to be a a community-wide effort. One of the reasons why I think these um, characters and the whole series of uh, My Life's Worth Living is so important is because we're trying to reduce the stigma. I applaud the Cook Center for for taking this and tackling it head on to be proactive and making sure the conversations about uh, adolescent self-harm, self-medicating behaviors and suicide behavior is a proactive discussion, not a reaction to something that's happened. And I'm sure, Scott, given this uh, classmate of yours died 25 years ago, you were talking about suicide proactively. I'm sure you had a conversation about it after the fact this classmate died. And that's, we don't wanna be, reacting we want to be preventing and let's let's bring you into the conversation um so can you talk a little bit about the cook center so that that listeners understand um sort of the values and the motivation that brought the cook center into this collaboration yeah absolutely so uh the cook center is founded by uh greg and julie cook greg and greg is one of the founders of doTERRA essential oils and they had kind of a profound experience um, early in their marriage. Uh, a young boy in their neighborhood uh, was 11 years old and died by suicide. And the, the father happened to be out of town. And so this young boy's mother called Greg and asked, her, asked him to be with her at the hospital. And he was, he was there hmm. through the whole process of the young boy passing away. And because the father was out of town, Greg's the one who notified the father. And that stayed with them as a couple through their entire, uh, you know, through the last 15 years or so since this happened. And during that time, they've raised their own five children and every one of their five children have either had a a friend, a friend or a classmate die by suicide or attempt suicide. And when they had the opportunity to give back when when their means got to a level that they could give back, they just said enough is enough and this is the area that they that they want to have impact and so they started with first um, funding the first behavioral health unit focused on children in the state of utah uh, through primary children's medical center and then um, they did some funding with suicide prevention uh, for the governor's office and then greg said to me uh, well i i met him about that time and and he said we've given to science through the hospital and we've given to um, you know, to social change through the governor. But those are things that are going to take years of time to have impact. And I want to do something that's going to help now. Um, I, you know, I don't want to help in five. I mean, he wants to help in five years, but he doesn't want to wait five years to help. And um, James, 
Jim and I have a, a mutual friend who had already started the work on my life, life is worth living. His name's Terry Thorin. Mm-hmm. And Terry was the CEO of the studio that did the Rugrats and Wild Thornberries and Rocket Power and According to Ginger. And uh, maybe two months before I was offered the position to lead the Cook Center, Terry had started talking about suicide. And I was concerned to call him because I thought, oh, what's happened in his life? I don't want to hear about that, you know. And and then this opportunity came. And so I called him and said, you know, what's going on? Why, why are you posting about suicide? And he said, Anne, I want to make a change. And so really, um, my role was to marry two geniuses, right? Um, <laughs> Greg Cook said, this is something I want to change. Terry Thorne was already on the path of that. And I brought them together. And, um, and so we've been able to, you know, Cook Center has been able to fund this work of, of Terry Thorne and, and get it out there. So, so um, and Terry's organization is called Wonder Media. And he's and what's 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 so good about this is that, you know, we have Dr. Maza, who is who is a leading suicidologist in the country, who is a psychologist, you know, works in schools. I mean, really understands the problem and the research and what needs to happen. We have Terry, who is a who is a master storyteller who can take really difficult topics and make them um, beautifully told in a way that that. that affects your heart, but doesn't, uh, but isn't triggering. Um, and then you have the, the Cook family and the Cook Center who had the means to, to bring it all to fruition. And, you know, and my part in this is I've worked in schools for the last 25 years and, and, in, and in the ed tech space. And so I bring this, you know, wealth of connection and, and knowledge about how to engage with schools in a, in, in a, you know, in distribution. And so it's really, it's, it's really just a coming together, um, a wonderful serendipity to make it all happen is how we came together. And, and we're, you know, we're really proud of the, the, the overall partnership. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a point that shouldn't be lost in what you just said, that if you, if you want to have real impact, it, it, it rarely, if ever, is one organization or one person. It's, it's people that get connected, that have all the different uh, areas of expertise and capabilities to pull off something really big. And, and in each of those stories, there's a person like you that is sort of the, the catalyst for ha- making that happen. I think that's such an important it's an important lesson, you know, for anyone that's trying to impact social change. But let's talk about the series um, for a few moments. So the My Life is Worth Living series, as you said, is about 20 episodes. It's animated. It has five characters that, that flows across the episodes. Can you give a brief introduction to the five characters and the issues that are being highlighted within the narratives of those characters? Yeah, absolutely. Um and, and I also want to say, you know, how we chose these situations is through, um, is, is through Dr. Maz's um, expertise and what are the major reasons why kids, you know, are, or what are the major things that kids are struggling with today. So if you look at our characters, um, our character Kyle uh, is a young boy. He's a sophomore in high school. And he has something happen to him on a soccer field and all of a sudden he's, you know, Kyle goes from kind of a normal kid life to all of a sudden his phone is blowing up with you suck. Why are you on the team? You should get out of here. You know, why don't you just kill yourself? I mean, just, you know, really difficult cyber bullying kind of things that's happening 
every day in this country to millions of children. And because of that, he feels so bad about himself that he uh, goes to a party and gets really drunk. And guess what? He gets videoed when he's really drunk and he wakes up the mor- in the morning to more cyberbullying. Hmm. And just a situation where he just thinks, what am I, you know, why should I even stick around? And his helper turns out to be his dad. And we, I love the, that we have, you know, healthy family relationships um, displayed in our, in our series. We also, our, our next girl is Amy, and Amy has been dealing with depression her whole life, and she's a previous um, suicide attempt survivor, and she now has to figure out how to reincorporate back into her life. And if you think about, you know, about, um, Jim, I'll, I'll let you correct me if I've got this n- number wrong, but about 6,000 uh, children a year take their life by suicide, and about five times that, five times that attempt. So you've got mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of children who have had this, uh, who have who have attempted suicide, and now they have to figure out how to go back to their normal life. And the good news is, is that, is that you know, having this is not a life sentence. You you can overcome these these feelings and these thoughts. Um, kids can overcome that. And Amy is modeling that for the thousands of kids who are in that situation. We have Emily, who um, has has experienced sexual abuse in the home, um, and I think the unique thing about Emily's story is that so often when a girl gets the courage to tell, they're not believed, and in Emily's story, everyone believes her and activates for her safety from the minute she reveals to an adult what's happening. Um, Dante is a, is a young man who's part of the LGBTQ plus community, and he's not sure where he fits in the world, and he's not sure um, who's going to accept him and who's not, and if his father will. And, and it's a journey of not only Dante in the story, but it's also a journey of his father. And the really unexpected person that helps them is Dante's football coach. Hmm. So, you know, the big, strong football coach is not the person that you would think would help Dante's father um, accept him, but but it is, and then provides Dante other supports. And then our last character is actually based on uh, on a real life person. Um, our character's name is Danny. The real life person is named Gabe Alvarado, and Gabe, um, in his twenties, I think, uh, was in a, a very bad fire and and has lost an arm and dealt with some scarring and and has really overcome through just amazing, amazing positive attitude and um, he and so he's our inspiration for Danny and so Danny is a teenager but he he uh, gets injured in a fire and feels that feeling of, of being a burden to his family and and you know wonders if it's if if it's worth going on and and his helper in his story is his little brother um, who really his little brother's name is Angel and he um, you know really is the angel in Danny's life because he shows him that life can can be a new normal, but it can be normal again. And those are our characters. Thank you for telling the stories of those characters. I think that we can identify in some way with each of those characters with people in our own lives. Jim, you know, when when the characters are being brought to life through the animation and through the initial um, uh, storyboarding of who the characters would become, my, my assumption is that as the narratives unfold, we're trying to learn about 
important events that can help turn a negative spiral into something more positive. Are, can you talk about, as, as the content expert, some of the takeaway messages that you thought were so important in those narratives that, again, starts to maybe fulfill some need for hope that we all have in this topic? Yeah, sure. Uh, Anne did a great job of explaining those characters in, in the adolescent issues that were, are probably the, the central focus. And so and it's more of an accumulation effect that happens that than a, any you know one event. So even when we described Kyle and, and getting drunk at the party, that certainly is exacerbating already cyberbullying that's taking place, already self-esteem issues, already feeling like this, this athlete is not fitting in. And so <clears throat> one of the big issues that I thought and I still think really comes to light is that some of our adolescents, when they ask for help in real life, are told it's OK. It, you're just going through a phase. Right. And so it's really mm -hmm. invalidating for an adolescent to hear that, oh, it's nothing. Pick yourself up by the bootstraps. You'll get over it. Right. That's not what they're trying to do. Adolescents are not experts at reaching out and saying, I need help. And so we tried to make sure in each of the stories that we have, each of our characters, that there is a person, an adult person there that the character reaches out to or the, a adult person sees this and says, I, I see you for who you are. I see that you're, you're hurting. Let's talk. Let's get help. And some of our adult characters say, hey, look, this isn't my expertise. So let's go get an expert, which is beautiful. That's exactly what I want some of our adults to think and see. We have some of our characters uh, who reach out and they get pushed away by either, it could be a parent or a friend and made fun of, and they reach out again. And so that becomes important to where they get a validating experience. One of the key things that I wanted to make sure happens is that the characters all have this inside voice that talks to them. And I thought that Terry and Anne have done a fantastic job of making sure we see that inside voice because all of us have it. And it talks to us in negative ways. And so. We didn't want that the end of each one of our characters to be like fixed or healed. Like, okay, all done. Mm -hmm. Don't have to worry about this for the rest of my life. That's not how mental health works. It actually means you've got this voice inside you. You're going to have for the rest of your life. And so we, I thought, were very strategic in making sure the characters all provided strategies and skills that we know work from research, from the science. And we were able to implement them beautifully into the stories that these characters were experiencing as skills that can help reduce the, the noise or the level of intensity these thoughts are having and reduce the suicidal or self-harming or self-medicating behaviors. In thinking about the series itself, of course, you had a creative genius in, in Terry Thorne and his, and his colleagues doing the storytelling you, you made the choice because of that, that this would be an animated series. Why do you think that animation is a good vehicle for telling these stories rather than doing some sort of, a, a, you know, filmed drama? Well, I think animation on many levels is the best way to tell these stories. Um, and, and not just because Terry was our expert, but because um, animation is timeless. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if you think about Snow White from Disney, in 1936, it's still relevant today. There's not much live action that's still relevant today from 1936. <laughs> um, so, so that's first and foremost. The second thing is, is, is animation is the world where kids feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I, I happened to be at an event once with 750 kids and Terry was speaking and he said, who watched a cartoon this morning? And I thought, Oh, that's a, anyway, 725 kids raised their hand. <laughs> I mean, I was just shocked by that. So it is the place where, where kids live. Um, if we did that same thing today and we said, who watches it, who watched a YouTube video today, it would probably be, you know, 750 plus every teacher in the room. Um, so, you know, animation on YouTube, but then more importantly is there's, there's some science facts behind animation as well. One thing is it suspends, um, judgment. So if you're watching, if you're watching something that's live action, all of a sudden, even if you're not meaning to, you're making all of these judgments, you're making socioeconomic judgments about the characters you're making, um, um, location judgments about the characters you're making, um, you know, uh, I don't know, just just all of a sudden. And with animation, instead of seeing all that stuff behind the character, you know, like where 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 the story's taking place, who's around, you can focus actually on the story because it's just it's just how the belief works in animation. The other thing that is really fascinating about it is that kids model, and not just kids, but um, but but people model what they see in animation. So. Um, one of his, some of the work that Terry did with the Rugrats and, and Wild Thornberries is there was research done that showed when you watch episodic um, television shows and when kids would watch episodic television shows that showed empathy and compassion, then kids would go on and show empathy and compassion. When you showed, you know, Ren and Stimpy and, and um, you know, SpongeBob SquarePants, things like that, where people are, in, where the kids are insulting or the characters are insulting to each other or they're mean to each other then that's exactly what kids model and so kind of without even knowing it um, animation creates modeling and so uh, so really it is the best vehicle that we could do for for this for, for all of those reasons when I was uh, looking through um, several of the episodes there there is a curriculum that's built into this uh, into the episode so that if you're watching it um, th there's a guidance for someone that could be leading discussion on that Jim, can you talk about sort of how that curriculum is, I guess, who's the intended audience for it? How do you see the applications of these uh, series, these animated characters playing a role in either classrooms, families, et cetera? Yeah, I, I love the fact that there is a, a curriculum that goes along with the, the characters that are there. And I think that was very strategic on uh, Terry's part and on Anne's part to say, hey, look, we're going to talk about a topic that a lot of people aren't comfortable talking about, including our teachers, including the students. And so what we're going to do is give you a guide so that when you're done watching one of the, the stories that you can talk about what's happened and you can feel comfortable in talking about the, the uh, topic or the content that they, that they just saw. And so that's what those, um, that's what the curriculum is for is kind of to be a, a parallel guide to make sure that the students understand and accentuate what parts within that story did they see? What parts would they have done differently? What parts did they see the character and how they reached out for help, right? Those types of things. And I think it, it, it's brilliant to do it through animation because it gives our students one small step from being, oh, that's me versus they can identify it. So there's a little bit of a distance that's there because they're, they're you know animation versus a real person. And then, like Ann said, someone's going to say, well, geez, 
I've got dark hair, that person's got blonde hair. You don't worry about that when it comes to uh, animation. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it was like live people, they could find reasons not to identify with the character. And when you ask any kid who they identify with in any of the Star Wars movies or any of the Lord of the Ring movies, they find people, mm-hmm. right? And so that's what this animation piece is about. They find characters. And so you, you can do that with any Disney movie about who they see uh, represents them the closest. And that's what we're looking to do is for them to get engaged with a character in, uh, or in the stories and watch how that unfolds in a naturalistic environment. The curriculum simply guides the questions and guides the teacher to facilitate that discussion within the classroom. And that to me is a win-win. So I had a really proud moment just leaning on what, what Jim just said. Um, our character Amy is biracial. And I actually didn't know that early in the series. And I, I was having a, a uh, an education colleague look at the look at the series and just kind of give me her feedback and she says oh I love that you I love that you put a black girl in there and and she had looked at Amy and I was like Amy's not black and then, and so as a white person I identified with Amy as white but mm-hmm. as a black person my colleague identified with Amy as black and then and then I went back and looked, and and she's biracial. She's uh, her her dad is black and her mom is white, and you actually see that in the beginning of the series. You see family pictures and stuff, and um, and and I just loved that uh, that that we both identified with her, uh, and so it was you know it was just a very proud moment that we're doing things right, and and we're very proud of all of that that we're representing a lot of races within the series. Yeah, absolutely. And have you um, has the series been? I mean. You know, what's the uptake of how people are using it? I assume that you're carefully monitoring that. Have you been able to discern patterns in schools using it, uh, community organizations, parents, et cetera? You know, we've had we've had a variety of everything. Um, you know, we've had schools and school counselors that are using it and, and using the curriculum. Um, we just made the curriculum available through the American Federation of Teachers, so that makes it available to 1.9 million teachers. Um, we have um, hospitals that have used it. Um, Primary Children's is using it, and another one in Memphis that's a children's hospital have both reached out and asked if they can use it. Um, we've also had community organizations um, ask us for screenings. Uh, another very proud moment, um, Jim was talking about the, in, the internal voice that kids have, is when we did a live screening at a university, uh, a young girl came up, or she was, I guess, a young woman, because she would have been in college, came up to me and at the end of it and she said, thank you so much. I never understood that my internal voice was, was part of me instead of hmm. coming at me. And I just thought, wow, you know, we might've just made a difference. So, so we see it in a variety of settings um, and our, and even our curriculum, it's a mix of, of private thought and, and public discussion. So if, if a teacher wanted to, you know, kids can have journal entries, and but then there's also you know group discussion topics that they could have but it was also really important that every one of our lessons has a family engagement component as well Mm -hmm. so that even if it's a parent at home they could they can get access or they can obviously access it but they could use this as dinner 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 table conversation in a really healthy way to be able to start the conversation around mental health for their kids yeah, it struck me when I was looking through several of the discussion guide slash lesson plans that 
it's not like you would typically think of a lesson plan that would only be used in a classroom. I mean, I could envision all types of community organizations using this, parents who homeschool. Um, it's very adaptable, I think, to um, various circumstances. Um, so I wanna, I wanna ask um, a question, um, and, and I hope that this doesn't catch either of you off guard because I, did, I didn't warn you about this, but when uh, recently, um, I was um, listening to NPR, and there was a story about a parent group um, in a southern state that was uh, confronting their school board because of socio-emotional learning curriculum, along with a host of other uh, curriculum topics that you can guess. But the essential argument that was being made about SEL by this group was that there was a hidden agenda. Um, they linked it to some other topics that are in the popular press um, and essentially argued that that should be the domain of parents, not the school. Um, I don't want to give voice to that, but I do think it's important to understand that that is not just a part of the dialogue in that one community, but there are unfortunately forces around the entire country where this same type of argument is likely to come up. How would the two of you um, try to engage that dialogue in a productive way? So look, kids are worrying about this. Um, in Utah, we just had, we do a survey that's called the SHARP survey. And it's for every sixth to 12th grader. Um, in, and they do it every other year. And so just maybe about three weeks ago, this data came out and, um, and let me tell you, kids are talking about suicide. Mm -hmm. Kids, 53, this data from the state says 53% are worried about a fellow student dying by suicide. So 53% are worried about a friend. They're all talking about it. And, and if parents, um, I, I think the beauty of what we're doing is that schools can use this, but we also are focused on the home and we're focused on hey, mom and dad, we want to give you the resources in your own home, privately, on demand, that you can support your own child's mental health. Um, so do I think it should be in the schools? I do, absolutely. Do I think it should be in the home? I do, absolutely. Um, and I think that uh, it can't be talked about enough. It just has to be, it has to, you know, here's, here's another kind of important thing that I talk about a lot is 80% of families rely on the school systems for their child's mental health. About 17% rely on the medical system. But what that means is almost 100% of families are outsourcing mental, ho mental mm -hmm. health outside of their home because they don't feel equipped to deal with the, with the um, just even minor things that happen. A five-year-old who's coming home bullied a parent really doesn't know how to how to deal with that and what does that look like and how does that feel and there's all this parental shame that goes on around it and so it's it's just so important that we are giving guides to families to be able to help their students so we or to help their children and so we are all in favor of families helping their children and but we also know that where the children are is in schools and so we want schools to help the children as well that's what i would say Jim, do you want to comment? I'm not sure I can add much more to that. That was beautiful, uh, Anne. And so I think some of the pushback that might be occurring, Scott, is that parents, because they don't know how to do it, they have a lot of anxiety built up about it, or fear, fear of saying the wrong thing, especially if it has to do with suicide, right? 
And so I think trying to validate that this is hard, that that they weren't given any of these skills when they were in high school. I, maybe, Scott, you had a class called Parenting and uh, <laughs> Supporting Mental Health in Your Kids. I mean, I didn't have that class. And so, you know, we, we the assumption is, oh, you should just be able to do it when you become a parent. And if anybody here is a parent, any of our listeners, you know that you would have loved to have had the instructional guide on how to raise a healthy <laughs> child. It's not there. And so I think that what we're trying to do now is find ways, means, and accessibility, like uh, Ann just talked about, to help start to educate our parents who want to take the step to help their kids. And so, and those that are afraid to do that are the ones that might be pushing it away to say, no, I, I can't do this, or this just needs to be uh, family stuff. It shouldn't be done at schools. And I think that we're starting to put categories or silos into some of these things. And I think that's mm -hmm. a dangerous uh, proposition because we, we believe, I believe as a school psychologist, education should be that 65%-ish academic focus because I want our kids to be able to do math and reading and language arts and, and biology. The other 35%, though, should be decision-making, how to get along with others, interpersonal effectiveness skills, how to, mm -hmm. how to deal with our emotions because we're going to have them for the rest of our lives too. And so that's a time that the kids are learning too. And adolescence is a prime time when they need that. So make it a community piece, family, schools, mm -hmm. Uh, agencies. So the conversation is out there and people then could, will feel better about accessing those resources, whether it's parents or adolescents. And we need to give parents a little bit of a break too, because they are unique. They are uniquely dealing with an arena that they didn't have any experience with. Mm -hmm. So the parents today, they didn't, they didn't have internet. Um, they didn't have, uh, or, you know, not on, not on a wide scale. They didn't have right, social right. media. And, and that's taking up such a big part of a kid's day. I mean, kids are, are, are using technology seven to nine hours a day. And they, the parents don't even have an example of like what that should look like and how you should manage that. Um, and, then, and then students are worried about, you know, this back to the SHARP survey, 35% of kids are worried about an active shooter. Not something I was worried about when I was a kid, but, you know, but kids today are. Um, they're worried about you know, other students' alcohol use. They're worried about friends dying by suicide, as I said. Like, it is it is a different time. So we need to give parents a break, but be able to say, yeah, I need to, I need some guidance and some help to understand this a little more. Yeah. yeah I, I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. I, I would say I agree with Ann. Give them a break, and I'd go one step further. We need to empower our parents. We need to let them mm -hmm. know this is a really hard job. Nobody signed up for a pandemic. Nobody signed up for eight to 10 hours of social media or technology. And so it's new. So we need to empower them because I think the majority, the vast majority of parents want to help their kids. And I think the vast majority aren't sure how to do that. Yeah, I, I, I want to make sure that I'm clear for the listeners that when I referenced that um, issue, it had nothing to do with the series, My Life is Worth Living. It was the more general topic of social emotional uh, teaching and learning in the classroom. But thank you both for addressing that. W one funny thing is the, the instruction manual that my wife and I had for my daughter was what to expect when. And you filled in the blank as, as your kid got older, right? And that was the instruction manual that we had. And, and you're right, it didn't address social media. One of the, one of the things uh, oftentimes when I'm talking about social media with, with audiences that I'll point out, and I may have lost count, but the iPhone would be, I think, a freshman in high school right now, right? So if you just let that sink in 
and think about how much has changed since the iPhone came out, the rise of social and mobile media that happened not too long after that. Think about how much has changed in such a short amount of time that literally impacts almost everything that we do on a daily basis. I mean, it's mind boggling when you put it in those terms. And so I think that um, the point that both of you made about, you know, really understanding that that parents are not going to be well equipped to think about the dynamics of all of that, um, you know, on a given in a given moment with a given situation is entirely fair. And and again, I, I do applaud the fact that the series was very intentional about having multiple uses that includes the family as being able to use this as a point of dialogue. I think to conclude our discussion, um, you know, as as an administrator, um, you know, we're dealing with the same issues. I mean, the students are a few years older, but it's not like all of a sudden it changes when they become a freshman in college. And, you know, one of the things that I'm really trying to grapple with is, of course, at Ohio University, we have a uh, counseling and psychological services center that has dramatically expanded in, in recent years um, to address the needs of students. Our, our student life unit on campus um, has at you know the core of its mission to help promote student well-being, and it's something that really is becoming a focus for every higher education institution. As a dean, I'm trying to think about in my buildings, um, with my approximately 2,000 majors and um, around 100 faculty members, what are small things that I can do that provide some, what I'm calling, and maybe it's a bad term, but small pressure relief valves um, so that when a student is going through their daily life in my building, it's not necessarily a big thing that we do, but it's something small that that changes their day in a positive way, even if just for a few moments. Um, you know, you you two are experts and you have a much bigger vision about this than I do at the moment, but I'm I'm really trying to grapple with this question. Do you have advice, you know, along those lines? One of the things I think you can do, Scott, and especially now as the uh, university settings are coming back to in-person, is have a place that's designated for students to um, mingle and to talk. And so maybe, you know, small, uh, like numerous tabletops kind of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with bar stools. So that there's, there's conversation that's more, uh, quaint and not institutionalized furniture, right? So these are things that you would like to see if you were out at an outdoor like restaurant <laughs> or something that kind of facilitates that. I would also put up mm-hmm. really empowering words on the walls. I mean, I, I love it when I go into a school and I see courage and I see, uh, care and I see, you know, mindfulness. Those are the mm-hmm. wonderful words that just kind of sometimes remind our students about uh, being uh, in the moment and not worried about the the past or worried about the future. So I think some some things along those lines. So I see that as a immediate thing that you can do. Here's the other thing that uh, I've done at the University of Washington is I developed a course just what you're talking about. So I developed a wellness and resilience course for undergraduates, and I was supposed to be teaching graduate students. And so this undergraduate course was floated as a trial balloon uh, hmm. six years ago, starting off with 60 students in one quarter. And now we teach 300 students per quarter, every quarter. We're opening up a second section because the enrollment is so high and there's such a need for it. And so students are willing to pay dollars, their own their own tuition dollars, to get emotion regulation skills, to get resilience mm-hmm. strategies, to get gratitude practices so that they feel better about being in school. And that's going to help them 
get reattached to the university and it's going to help them their, with their academics and life situations once they graduate. And this is a, this is a high school exercise, but I think it could be really used in a, in a college setting. But one of the exercises that we do that when we work with teachers is we talk about, or, or with schools, is, is put every name on the board of the children that you're responsible for. So is it a class? Is it the RA at the dorm? Is it, you know, your dean of students or, you know, you're the dean of students or whatever, but put every name up on a board. And all the people who surround mm -hmm. that student in the in the leadership realm, um, you know, over the course of a couple of weeks, come in and, and just write, do you know this child by face? Do you know something about them? And if you want, write what they know about them. But what that exercise does is it shows you the kids that nobody's paying attention to. So by the end of that, you end up with, and, and in a high mm -hmm. school setting, the, the one that I modeled this on, you know, they ended up with 16 kids out of maybe 600 that nobody had written anything on their card. And those are the kids who you need to worry about. They're the ones who are, who are quiet, who are probably feeling disconnected, mm -hmm. might feel lonely. And so by knowing who those kids are, then faculty and, and whoever was in charge was able to seek them out and build a relationship. But you almost had to visually see, you know, who do we not, who are we missing? Who do, who do we not know about? And, um, and, and then deploy the troops to mm -hmm. help them. Anne and Jim, thank you both so much for uh, lending us the story of what it is that you're doing uh, and also your expertise in trying to tackle this issue. It is it is something that we all as educators need to pay attention to, that we all as parents need to pay attention to, even just as members of our community. Um, because at the end of the day, if we can prevent one suicide, then that's a success, but, but we wanna prevent a lot more than that. So thank you for the work that you're doing. It's so important. Well, thank you for helping us get the word out. This is, yeah, right. Thank you, Scott. This Appreciate is amazing. <clears throat> My guests today were Dr. Jim Maza. He's a professor of education at the University of Washington and also Ann Brown, who's president and CEO of the Cook Center for Human Connection. We've been mostly talking about the series, My Life is Worth Living. Uh, and of course, we will have a link to that series in the text accompanying the podcast where listeners can explore it more, watch the programs, see the educational materials and and really get a sense of how this could be used um, to uh, have positive impact in the world around you. Thank you for listening to WOUB's Teaching Matters series. This episode is produced by WOUB in Athens, Ohio. Our audio engineer and associate producer is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth, your host. Have a great day.